The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter in the 19th verse. The 19th verse in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And this is the condemnation that light is come or has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now we must remember the context of this statement. So I'll go back and read again from verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now, if it's true to say that John 3.16 is the greatest and the most loving and the most wonderful verse in the whole of the Bible, well then I assert that this verse that we're looking at tonight, John 3.19, is certainly the most tragic verse in the whole of the Bible. And I say that it is the most tragic verse because it holds us face to face with the whole tragedy of the world as it is in sin at this moment. It just puts that right before us. And at the same time, of course, it holds us face to face with the most tragic single event that has ever taken place in the whole long and varied history of the human race. I refer to the rejection and to the death on the cross on Calvary's hill of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. This verse, I say, holds us face to face with both these things. We see why the world is as it is, and we are looking at that tragedy of tragedies. The foolish mob that cried away with him, crucify him, and chose a robber Barabbas to be released instead. That is, I say, the tragedy with which this uh, verse confronts us. We are looking at the world, I say, as it is this evening. 
in all its pain, its problem, its perplexity, its unhappiness. And this verse helps us to see and to understand why the world is as it is. What are the elements in the tragedy? It tells us, for instance, that the world is as it is, as I've been trying to show in the two previous Sunday evenings. The world is as it is because man misunderstands, doesn't realize the real and the essential nature of his problem and of his need. Man, as we've seen, is still persuaded and convinced that his essential problem is intellectual, whereas our Lord is here revealing so clearly that the essential problem is moral and is spiritual. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, well, why doesn't everybody turn to it? The answer is that men loved darkness. And as he goes on to say, hated the light. It's moral. It's spiritual. But the world doesn't know that. It thinks the problem is purely intellectual. That's one thing that it reminds us of at once. The second element in the tragedy which it puts before us very plainly and clearly is this. That the world deliberately rejects it's one and only means of deliverance and of salvation. Men didn't turn to it. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. This is, you see, of the very essence of the tragedy, the modern tragedy, the, the tragedy that the world has been in ever since the beginning when men first, first fell. He has deliberately been rejecting and turning his back upon and spurning. The only thing that can really deliver him and solve his problems. But perhaps the height of the tragedy is seen when I put it in this form. This verse reminds us of it so plainly. The world in its blindness turns God's greatest act of love into something that becomes the means of its own condemnation. Now that, I say, is the very height of the tragedy. This is the condemnation. What is the condemnation? The condemnation is that God's greatest act of love, even God's greatest act of love, is so misunderstood and refused and rejected that that very thing becomes the means of our condemnation. Now, there is no tragedy greater than that. The highest offer of God's love is turned by men in sin and in unbelief into the very cause of his condemnation. Now, there I say at once on the very surface of this verse, we are given an analysis of the elements of the predicament and the tragedy of the human race this evening. Man has rejected his own Savior. Now the question that therefore confronts us is this, why has he done so? What is the, the reason for this? 
with the world, as I say, in such trouble, in such despair, in such misery and wretchedness, why is it that men and women are still rejecting it? Why is it that the one who was rejected and sent to that cruel death 1957 years ago is still being rejected this evening? Well, I want to try to answer that question. And I would answer it like this. The first reason is that men do not realize that the fact of Christ is the most momentous question facing them. Now, I'm putting my emphasis upon the fact. The verse does, you see. This is the condemnation, that the light has come. That's history. Something's happened. Something has taken place. Well, at once you're in the realm of history. You're in the realm of facts. Now, I say that the first cause of the trouble is that man in sin, mankind as it is, doesn't realize that this is the first thing to consider. Now, our Lord was trying to bring Nicodemus to see that. He spoke these words, you remember, to this great man, Nicodemus. And he was drawing attention to himself and trying to wean Nicodemus from all these questions that were agitating his mind, the understanding of miracles and things like that. He says, in effect, look at me. I'm the fact. Look at me. The light has come. But isn't it still the trouble? There are many uh, intelligent, sincere, honest people in the world this evening who are genuinely and honestly concerned about the state of the world at this present hour. They don't stop at reading the newspapers. They read books. They read attempts to solve the problem. They're reading philosophy. They're reading psychology. They're reading sociology. They're reading politics, economics, and all these things. And why? Well, because they have this great concern about the present situation, because they're really becoming desperate about the whole state of the world. They say if something doesn't happen and all this atomic power goes on being released and being experimented in this way, the whole world is going to be destroyed. And if the world isn't destroyed, civilization at any rate is certainly going. And they say something must be done. They have a genuine concern. And yet you see the fallacy, you see the tragedy. All along, they're talking and arguing and debating and discussing in terms of ideas, in terms of thoughts and teachings and concepts. And they never look at certain facts which are there confronting them. Isn't this the simple truth? They are talking and arguing and discussing as if the light had never come, as if nothing had ever happened. They are facing the situation and they say, well, now what can we do about this? Oh, now let's consider this theory and that theory. And here they are, I say. Some believe that the whole thing's philosophical. Some believe it's psychological. Some believe it's political, economic, social, and so on. And here they are arguing about these, putting the one up against the other, trying to put them into practice. And they've been doing so for centuries and especially during the last hundred years, and yet the world is going from bad to worse, and Nemesis seems to be staring us in the face. 
And I say it is because they're not facing facts. And the business of the gospel is to call men and women to face facts. And I say the greatest fact and the thing that we should start with this evening if we are concerned about the world is this. Is the fact that light has come. Now this is historical. I'm speaking about revelation. I'm speaking about something that God has actually done. Something that has literally taken place in the realm and on the field of history. What do you mean, says someone? Well, let me put it like this to you. My text tells us this evening that the light has come. Nicodemus was a seeker and searcher after the truth. He was a man who was looking for and expecting light. Our Lord says, men, can't you see? The light has come. The light had come even in the Old Testament in a sense. Now this is the whole case of the Bible, the whole case of Christianity and the church tonight. That for the world in its predicament, which is looking frantically for solutions and rushing hither and thither and seeking explanations, the Bible says, what are you doing? Stop! Give up your quest and your searching. Look at the light that has come. I say it's in the Old Testament to start with. Go back and look at that old world, B.C. And this is what you find. You find that there was one nation which stood out amongst all the other nations. It was the nation of the Jews. There was a uniqueness about it. There was something separate and distinct. It wasn't like the other nations. There were the other nations worshipping a multiplicity of gods. Yes, even a learned nation like Greece proud of her philosophy and her knowledge and her understanding. The great city of Athens was cluttered up with temples to the various gods, the god of war, the god of peace, the god of love, the god of hate, the god of thunder, and so on. Gods, multiplicity of gods, idols. Oh, you're familiar with the history. Go and read it up again. They'd bow down before an image made of stone or of wood or of or metals, some worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars, worshipped spirits in trees, and so on. But there was this one nation, a little nation, and it was altogether different. With a higher morality, with a purer way of living, with an understanding of life that stood out and made it distinct and apart. What's the explanation? The explanation is that God had given light to these people. He had brought these people into existence specifically in order to give them light and to speak through them. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, that the advantage the Jews had was this, that unto them had been given the oracles of God. 
The other nations are remaining in the darkness of paganism and they're groping about, they're trying to discover an answer. They're aware of a problem. They feel that there are forces and powers that they can't see and they try to say they're in these various objects, some in animals, some as I say in the sun and moon and stars, others in the gods they've projected out of their own imaginations and they're worshipping them and pleasing them and placating them. But here is a nation that says, no, God is spirit. And God is unseen and eternal. God is the creator and there's only one God. And how would they come to know that, I ask? And the answer is that God had given them light. He had revealed and manifested himself to them. He had looked at a man called Abram who was brought up as a pagan and dwelt there in Ur of the Chaldees. And he put his hand upon him and he said, Come out. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to make a nation out of you. I want to do something in you before the whole world that men and women may see and know that I am the only true and living God. He brought him out and revealed himself to him in a most amazing manner. And he produced a nation out of him. And to that nation, God continued to reveal himself. He gave them light. He called a man called Moses, one of the leaders of this nation, on one occasion up to a mountain. And there he spoke to him. He gave him the truth about himself and about his holy laws. He told him how to live and told him how to teach the people how to live. The great moral legislation of the Old Testament. None of the nations had ever seen anything like it. And the world still doesn't live up to it. But where did they get this light from? It was God revealing it. God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and gave him light on all these subjects. That's the explanation. The light has come. And so he led them, I mustn't keep you. He gave them kings, but above all he gave them prophets. He raised and sent to them this mighty succession of men whom we call prophets and whose writings we have recorded in the Old Testament. And these men addressed the nation about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. They revealed unto them the hopeless of men as he is, hopelessness of men as he is. And they began to tell them of one who was to come, a great deliverer, a mighty Messiah, one whom God was going to send who would deliver one who was going to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. It was God who spoke through them. These men tell us that. They don't say that they sat down and tried to think it out or that they suddenly had a poetic inspiration. They say the burden of the Lord or the word of the Lord came upon me. They say they disavow that it's their own composition. They say that they were possessed by the Spirit and God opened their eyes and gave them a message and they simply recorded it. Light! The light has come. But that is the Old Testament. Ah, we mustn't depreciate it. You remember how the Apostle Peter uses it as an argument in his second epistle in the first chapter? He was writing to these people and he said, Look here, never become unhappy or uncertain about your gospel and your belief. 
Men, he says, will try to shake you. I'm an old man. I'm about to die. I just want to say these things to you before I die. What is your faith based upon? Partly this. That I and James and John went up unto that mountain with the Lord and we saw him transfigured and we heard the voice speaking out of the excellent glory and saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. But you know, says Peter, there's something better than that for you. You have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you should take heed as unto a light in a dark place, shining until the day star shall arise in your hearts. What's he mean by that? He means just this. If you want to know the truth of these things, says Peter, go back and read those Old Testament prophecies. Make a note of what they say about the coming Messiah, where he's going to be born, what tribe he's going to belong to, what he's going to do, and this and that. Make a list of them all, and then look at Jesus of Nazareth. There you'll see the fulfillment. That's the light, the light of the Old Testament. How marvelous, how wonderful. If only the world lived according to the Old Testament light this evening, it would be a much better place. But ah, when our Lord says to Nicodemus, the light has come, he wasn't only referring to that. He was, of course, very especially and very specifically referring to himself. He is the light. He's been referring to himself right away through this discourse. He calls himself the Son of Man, God's only begotten Son, and so on. And now he calls himself the light. And he is the fact. And what he's really trying to get Nicodemus to do, as I say, is to look at him. The fact of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is the tragedy in the world this evening. That men and women, I say, intelligent and zealous and honest, who are concerned about the problem and are feeling the burden of the times, here they are arguing and rushing hither and thither, and they're not looking at the fact, the fact of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was speaking there to Nicodemus. My friend, you are concerned about the problem of life this evening, aren't you? Have you considered the fact of Christ? Now I say, don't waste your time with theorizing and argumentation. This is the fact. The light has come. He says, I am the light. And I put it to you again that this is the essence of the tragedy of the world at this moment. That men and women are spending all their times with theories and concepts and are ignoring facts. The fact. Above all facts. that the light of God himself has already come into this world. That's the first thing. Let me hurry to the second. The second trouble with men is obviously not merely that they don't face the facts and are immersed in theories, but that they do not realize who he is. That's why they're not considering the fact of Christ. They don't know who Christ is. 
They regard all this as an irrelevance. They feel this is a waste of time. I'm referring to the people who think that I should be speaking about politics and economics and about the atom bomb every Sunday. Why do they want me to do that? Well, because they feel that Christ is an irrelevance. And they feel that because they don't know who he is. But what he says is this. Light has come into the world. You notice what he's saying there. You notice the claim that he's making for himself. Oh, my dear friend, let me invite you to look at him. Give a rest for the moment to your clever theorizings and argumentations and all your concepts and all the philosophy and politics and psychology that is so patently failing to deal with the situation. I say, come for a moment and look at him, consider him. Look at the fact of Christ, what you see. Well, this is what he says. I am the light and I, as the light, have come into the world. What's he talking about? Well, what he's saying is this, you see, that he's different from everybody else. Here was a man speaking to Nicodemus, another man. And yet you notice how he directs Nicodemus' attention to the essential difference between the two of them. Jesus of Nazareth was not merely born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem he came into the world. Bethlehem isn't the beginning of Jesus Christ. Your birth and mine is our beginning. It isn't his beginning. I take it that there is no one whom I need to disabuse of that platonic conception put by Wordsworth in his great poem, Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. No, no. You began when you first breathed in this world and you were not until then. But here is one who can say, I am come into the world. The light has come into the world. That is who he is. He's already been putting it to Nicodemus like this. He says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's who he is. He is God's only begotten Son. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, but he's more. He's God. God, the eternal Son. He's come out of eternity into time. The light has come into the world. The incarnation. That's what I'm talking about. If only the world would look at him and consider the fact of Christ. It's historical, you see. Go back and read these four Gospels. Read about the babe that was born in Bethlehem and put in a manger. Watch him. Listen to the things people say about him. Listen to the ecstasy of the aged Simeon as he holds the infant in his arms. Listen to Anna the prophetess. Look at the little boy aged twelve arguing and confuting the doctors of the law in the temple. What is this? Who is this prodigy? What is this precocious child? What is this? And then, in spite of that, the silent years of eighteen years' duration. 
the carpenter of Nazareth. And then suddenly the beginning of that public ministry, the crowded three years with the teaching and the miracles and the crowds and all the amazing utterances which make people say, never man spake like this man. Who is this? How is this man learning, never having learned? This man who comes from nowhere and who is apparently a nobody, who can turn the world upside down and knows more than all the learned with all their lore and their knowledge. Who is this? What is he? Have you faced that fact? I say you're not a, stu a true student of humanity and of life as it is this evening. You're not seriously coming to grips with the problem of the world as it is at this moment unless you look at this fact. Who is this? What is he? And then after all that his death in apparent weakness and utter helplessness and his dead body on the cross and the burial and the grave and the stone over it. It's the end. A false alarm. A false hope again. He was only a man after all. No, no. The resurrection. The appearances. The transformation in these dejected, disconsolate disciples. The baptism of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. The Christian church. The power that even turned pagan Rome upside down and made this despised sect the official religion of the great Roman Empire in three centuries. Have you faced those facts? Isn't it a tragedy that men are busied with everything but with this? In our need, in our awful predicament, isn't it time that we looked at him? The light has come. Here is the fact in history. He belongs to history solidly. You call this 1957, and thereby you say you recognize Jesus Christ as the divider of history. Well, why don't you listen to what he's got to say about history? Why do you spend so much time in reading philosophy and politics and economics and psychology? Why spend your time with all these things and never consider him? Have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever tried it? Have you ever given it an opportunity? Here is the fact. This unique person that stands out and cannot be put into any category. Why not start with him? He's a fact, not a theory. But come, let me call you to consider my last argument. I say that the world is as it is because men are spending their time with theories instead of facts. And that secondly, they don't look at the fact of Christ because they don't know and they don't realize who and what he is. And the third is this. They do not realize that all that we need and infinitely more is to be found in him. This is the condemnation that the light has come. Men and women are looking for light. I believe that you're here at this moment because you're looking for light, aren't you? There's something wrong. You're not satisfied. That's why you're listening to this gospel. You're looking for light. You say, is there no hope somewhere? Light, very well, he says, I am the light. I am the light of the world. He's come to give the light. 
He has brought the light that we so urgently need on every single and every conceivable question. What is it? What is the light that the world is desperately in need of this evening? Is it not this? First and foremost, light on God. Is there a God? Is there a God at the back of the universe? If there is, what is he like? The Apostle Paul reminds us that the world by wisdom knew not God. Plato and Socrates standing on tiptoe and on one another's shoulders can't arrive there. They can't find him. They've sought him. They can't find him. God eludes human search. Here is one who has come and reveals him. Light on God. No man hath seen God at any time. That's true, isn't it? No, no, not one of us has seen God. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. There is no light on God in the world tonight except that which you find in Jesus Christ. He's already been giving it. Listen to him in verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. No man hath ascended up into heaven, but I've come down from heaven and am still there. He speaks as an authority. He reveals God. Listen to him again later on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Would you like to know what God is like, my friend? Oh, I know there are times when you'd give the world for that. When you're in trouble or in despair and when you feel there's nothing left but prayer to God, you don't know what God is like and you say, I wish I knew what God is like so that I might speak to him. Well, listen to this one who was speaking to Nicodemus, and this is what you'll hear him saying. He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. What's God like? God is like Jesus Christ. And this is what he tells us about him. He tells us that God is holy, that God is infinitely glorious. He talks about the glory that he had shared with God before the very foundation of the world. God is glorious. God is infinite. God is holy. God is of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. And when he prays to him, that's how he addresses him. Holy Father, he says, There is your light on God. God sees all. God knows all. God is everywhere. And God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's God. God is not like man. He's eternally everlastingly different. There is the light on God that we so sadly need. But we also need light on ourselves, don't we? We need light on men. Why? We must need it. 
Because whenever we are honest with ourselves, we must confess that we are problems and enigmas to ourselves. What's the meaning of remorse? Why does a man kick himself metaphorically for what he's done? Why does a man keep on doing a thing that he knows is wrong and that will make him miserable when he's done it? Why does he go back to it? Why is man such a fool? Why is the world as it is? Why are things as they are? What is man? Do you understand man? Does your psychology really explain him? Are you satisfied with the schools and their proffered explanations? What is man? Where can I find light? I find it here and here alone in the same person. Do you remember what he said? I read it to you just now in that eighth chapter of this gospel. Ye are of your father the devil and the works of your father. Ye will do. Men. What's the matter with men? Ah, he says here the trouble with men and the matter with men is this. That man loves darkness rather than light. He hates the light and loves evil. There is that within him that makes him delight in these things. Men, what is men? Well, I'll tell you. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. And that's why you are what you are. And I am what I am by nature. We are the slaves and the servants of sin. There are lusts and evil passions and desires within us. And we are governed and controlled by them. Free will? What are you talking about? You haven't got it. You're the slave of an evil nature within you. And you know you are. Don't turn to me, said our Lord, to those Jews and say, We be Abram's seed and were never in bondage to any man. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. You can't defend sin, can you? Is there any defense for drunkenness? Is there any defense for lust and passion? Is there any defense for a man that deliberately steps into another man's married life because of his own lust and desire and deliberately wrecks it and perhaps ruins the lives of innocent little children? Can you defend it? Why does he do it? Lust, the servant of sin, evil mastering and controlling us, that's the light he's brought on men. There's nothing else in the world tonight that tells you things like that but the gospel. The newspapers don't speak to you like that, do they? Nor the magazines, nor the books. Of course not, you wouldn't buy them if they did. They please you, they play up to you, they pat you on the back. They say you're marvelous, if only you had a chance, and if only the politicians did this or that. But that isn't the trouble. The trouble is that we are of our father the devil by nature and the works and the lusts. Of our father we will do. We are the servants, the bond slaves of sin. And we are perishing, he says, and helpless. And we can do nothing about ourselves. Ah, civilization has been busy for centuries, for millennia. And yet the world is as it is. Why, well, man is so much the slave of sin. He can never set himself free. There is only one hope for him. He must be born again. He's blind, he's ignorant, he's prejudiced. And he is held so captive by the world and the flesh and the devil 
that he can do nothing at all about himself and about his emancipation. That is the light he has given us on men. Then what is his light on the world? Well, there in a sense it is. Shall I put it to you in just one phrase? Our Lord in his last prayer before his death used these words. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. That's the total explanation. The world is as it is because it doesn't know God. The world hath not known thee. It was made by him, and it was paradise, and it knew him, and it was perfect and full of happiness and bliss. But it sinned against him, and it lost the knowledge, and it's been as it is tonight ever since. That is the light that he casts upon the state of the world. But let me hurry on. I'm coming to something that you need very urgently. You want to know, don't you, how to live? You say, I find myself in this world, I never asked to come into it, but here I am. And I'm baffled and bewildered, and I'm surrounded by problems. And what I want to know is how to live. How can I live? You're trying this and that, but you still don't know. You say, what is life itself? And how can I live it in a worthy manner? There is no answer except the light that comes from him. He puts it like this. He says, follow me. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Why did he come into the world? Well, listen to his answer. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, we need life, don't we? We are all tired of life when we are born into it. The young people of today are tired. I'm sorry for them. It's a cruel world they're living in. And they're blase and they're tired. And they say, let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The atomic bomb is going to shorten our lives. They're tired out. They're exhausted and weary. They haven't got life. And here he is saying, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And then the terrible problem of this fight against the lust and the passion and the evil nature that is within. You fought it. We've all fought it. We've made our resolutions. We've given our pledges and our vows. We've hated the sin. We've said to others, stop me, hold me, restrain me. And yet down we go. Is there no hope? There is only one. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He can liberate. He really can set us free and give us liberty. Indeed, he offers us a life that is full and complete in every respect. You remember how he put it to the woman of Samaria? He said, he that drinketh of this water from that well shall thirst again, 
But he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. Here is a life that is full and complete, never a lack. Do you want joy? He'll give it you, not as the world gives. Do you want peace? My peace, he says, I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Are you tired? Do you want rest? He says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hasn't that solved the problem? of life and of living, whatever happens to you, wherever you may find yourself, whatever shall come against you, he will enable you, conquest all along the line. And then the need of light on how to die. Because we've not only got to live We have got to die. And it's there and it's coming and we can't avoid it nor evade it. And the world doesn't help us with respect to it because it doesn't know what light have you got on death? What do you know about how to die? What is death? Is it the end or isn't it? How can one face that horrid specter and still not run away frightened and alarmed? What is it? The world, I say, doesn't know. Listen to the poets telling us that. Sure, it is a serious thing to die, my soul. What a strange moment must it be When near the journey's end, thou hast the gulf in view, that awful gulf, no mortal e'er repassed, to tell us what's doing on the other side. No mortal has ever passed through that gulf and come back to tell us what's on the other side. So we are in darkness and we have no light. Yes, says Shakespeare, it is death, is that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And we are left in unutterable and impenetrable darkness. Oh, how can we die? You've got to. You've not only got to live, you've got to die. You've got to pass through that. How can you? Where is there light? There's only the light that comes from him. He has told us plainly in his teaching that death is not the end. Read the parable of Dives and Lazarus in the 16th chapter of Luke. And there he tells you that after death one is in Abram's bosom and the other in hell. There is life after death. The soul goes on. And not only that, he tells us that after death there is a judgment and we stand before God 
and give an account of the life that we have lived in the flesh. How can I meet him? How can I stand before him? I've ignored him. I've sinned against him. My sins are hot upon me. What can I do? How can I die if I awaken to the dread reality at the end? Thank God he has cast eternal light upon this also. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The moment you awaken to the fact that you've sinned against God and that you can do nothing about your sin, there is only one thing for you, and that is to believe this message that he was delivering to Nicodemus. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. To believe that God sent his Son into the world to die for the sins of men who believe on him. And if you believe it, you are forgiven at that very moment, justified by faith there and then. Light on how to die and light on eternity. I, he says, am the resurrection and the life. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's his light for you, for me. He is the light through death and into eternity. Whatever the light you need, it is in him. He says the light has come. He is the light. And there is the light. I've displayed it to you. Is this true, says someone? Well, you can go and consult the saints of the centuries. And they will tell you that when they came to him, they found the light they looked for. The light on God, the light on themselves, the light on the world, the light on how to live, the light on how to die, the light on eternity. The Apostle Paul found it. All the saints have found it. They've gloried in it. They've rejoiced in it. They've said he's enough. Art thou weary, art thou languid, art thou sore distressed? Come to me, saith one, and coming, be at rest. Ah, but there is the question. You must come to him. He says here that he that doeth evil hateth the light 
and cometh not unto the light, lest his deeds be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The light has come. Yes, but you must come to it. You must come to the light. What's that you say? It's just this. It is simply to believe this message that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. The eternal Son of God come down on earth to dwell that he, the Son of God, came. Why? Well, to deliver us. To deliver us from sin, from its punishment, by dying for our sins, from its thraldom and tyranny, by entering into our lives, by setting us free, by filling us with his Spirit, to lead us through life, to lead us through death, and to present us faultless before the presence of God's glory. Coming to the light means turning away from everything and turning to him and saying, I see it. I believe your message. I see myself in sin and hopelessness and shame. I believe you've died for me. I leave myself to you. Take me. Possess me. It means confessing your sins to God, repenting. Believing as a little child this message, surrendering your life to him, leaving all and going after him. And if you do so, I am certain and assured that you will be the first who will want to hurry to join me in saying and in singing this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I look to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in this light of life, I'll walk till traveling days be done. Come to the light. Listen to him as he speaks. Come to him and you will find the light of life and enjoy it to all eternity. Come, let us sing together that hymn. Hymn number 376. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. 376.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.